what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. I've been wearing an Apple Watch since late 2016. At first, I didn't pay much attention to the activity rings. That's the indicator that gives you a measure of how much you've moved generally, how much you've exercised, and how much you've stood in a day. When I got the watch, I was objectively inactive. That January, I started to prioritize moving a little bit every day. Sometimes it was on the treadmill, other times it was a quick walk outside. By the end of the month, I decided to give running a try. By April, I was feeling like a new person. I started bouldering that summer, weightlifting in the fall, and ran several races. My watch was super helpful for tracking my progress and providing those little dopamine hits when I accomplished new mileage or paces. My watch was very proud of me. Throughout the year, it kept raising my activity goals up up, up. My daily move goal increased weekly, and I was closing all my rings much more often than not. I ran my first half marathon, powered through two climbing competitions, and put more and more weight on the barbell. By the end of 2019, I was not only in the best shape of my life, but I was stronger and fitter than the vast majority of women my age. I was motivated by two things, performance and pleasure. I'm a competitive, anxious overachiever, so I was certainly driven by winning medals and hitting new PRs. But I also really enjoyed the time I spent running, lifting, and climbing. The physical exertion wasn't something I put up with to win or get fitter. I actually enjoyed it. Now, when gyms closed their doors in March 2020, I didn't worry about losing fitness. I worried about the loss of an activity I structured my life around. Of course, I worked out at home and I learned to really enjoy it, but I missed having performance indicators to work toward. Trying to do 100 push-ups just isn't the same as working toward benching 100 pounds. Running a virtual race just isn't the same as running a race with hundreds of people. The only performance indicator I had was my watch. Now, because I'd been training for a marathon when the pandemic hit, I was already earning a ton of points on my watch. Hitting 1,200 or more move points became my new baseline, up from 600-ish a year before. After I ran a solo virtual half marathon in June 2020, because who the heck is going to run a virtual full marathon, I didn't want to let my watch down. So I kept finding ways to hit the same numbers, July, August, September. It's no wonder that by October, my body was breaking down. I'd gone from being motivated by performance and pleasure to being hijacked by metrics. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores navigating the 21st century economy with our humanity intact. Now, metrics can be helpful. They give us a way to measure progress or results. But metrics also have a way of hijacking our motivation so that we focus more on the metric and its clarity rather than results that have richer, more complex value. We fixate on likes, shares, page views, email subscribers, and sales 
without evaluating more complex measures of success. We try to game the algorithm instead of really communicating something of value. Recently, I was introduced to the work of C.T. Nguyen. Nguyen is a philosopher of games. He thinks both about games proper and the gamification of things that are, in fact, not games. At the heart of his thinking about games is an analysis of value, incentives, motivation, and agency. And in that analysis, I find his thinking to be an important addition to this exploration of money and time. I'm going to lead you through some different aspects of Nguyen's thinking as they apply to challenges you might be experiencing in your work. And by might be, I mean that I'd be surprised if you didn't have these challenges. So let's start by getting a better understanding of what a metric actually is. A metric is a measurement, but a measurement of what? Nguyen explains that a metric is a simple way to represent a diverse and nuanced data set. He uses the example of grade point averages in this talk at the Royal Institute of Philosophy. So what happens in America is everyone gets a letter grade, A, A minus, B plus B, and each of those is translated to a number. So, you know, an A is a 4.0, a B is a 3.0, and then we have a number, and then you can average this. So when you come out of college, you have a GPA, a single number that represents your entire college experience, right? So imagine the difference between a GPA system in education and one based entirely on qualitative evaluation. Right? The qualitative evaluations, you can make rich and context sensitive. I could tell each student what they needed to work on, what they should be proud of. I could keep in mind what they wanted to do in their life. But that couldn't be aggregated, couldn't be overviewed by administrators. I couldn't summarize it quickly if I was an admissions officer. So we need GPAs instead. What GPAs give you is easy cognitive facility, a sense of power and understanding, right? Similarly, my watch takes the vast amount of data that it collects about me every minute and simplifies it into the three metrics that display visually, the activity rings. The move ring, for example, simplifies my steps, mileage, heart rate, and exercise into a single calorie count. So not only is the metric itself a reduction of a complex set of variables, the watch spits out a number that is itself a reduction of a particular view of health and fitness, one with a certain moral weight attached to it. In marketing, we get metrics such as likes, conversion, and engagement. What we see in reports is a single number, 35 likes, 3% conversion rate, 201 engagements. But what's really represented is something much more complex. And what's left out of those metrics is equally complex and often even more relevant to our actual goals. For instance, if my goal is to only work with clients who are passionate about podcasts, then the conversion rate on our services page tells me, well, very, very little. I frankly don't give a damn if our conversion rate is less than 1%, if it means that our time is devoted to clients who are passionate about their shows. But evaluating that result takes time and attention to detail. The conversion rate is a simple math equation, views divided by leads or sales. Time and money are metrics that often stand in for more complex data sets, too. I can tell you that I try to spend about an hour outside walking or running every morning. My watch would export that data as 60 exercise minutes, but that loses the richness of that hour. I listen to podcasts while I'm out walking, and often those podcasts provide the inspiration or research I need to do my work. I can come home with several new notes or a fresh understanding of an idea. 
There's no way that 60 minutes of exercise can represent the real value of that time for me. Money operates similarly as a metric. In a business, revenue or profit are often the end-all, be-all metrics. But what does revenue represent? It might represent customers or clients served, a shift in the market, a new level of skill, stories of transformation, or even failure to reach goals. It's not that revenue as a metric isn't important. It's that it's not the whole story. Now, earlier, I mentioned that I could feel my body starting to break down in October 2020 or so. I had been pushing myself to achieve higher and higher performance metrics all year, all from a baseline of training for a marathon. If I dared to take a break, my watch would nag me. Even if I'd worked out for an hour and taken a four-mile walk, it would say, you're not moving as much as you normally do. The monthly challenges it issued would get more and more extreme. Average 180 minutes of exercise per day this month. Go for 300 miles this month. Burn 36,000 active calories this month. I started to notice that I was increasingly motivated by what my watch told me to do, or its passive-aggressive comments if I didn't. And I was less motivated by an intrinsic desire to move more or increase my performance. I was still finding pleasure in movement, but I was also becoming neurotic about it. Tina Wynn calls this process value capture. Value capture is what happens when simplified measures of value subvert our intrinsic motivation and become the driving force of our actions. And value capture cases are cases in which you have kind of rich, subtle, maybe inchoate values, or you're in the process of making them. And then you enter something in the world, and the world offers you a simple, pre-established, already standardized, incorporated into a technology, simple version of that value system. I experienced value capture when I started to become fixated on my watch telling me I was doing good rather than being motivated by health, fitness, performance, or pleasure. Nguyen uses Twitter as an example to show how gamification changes the motivation for communication. Gamification threatens to change the target. When you gamify something in the world, like education or Twitter, when you give people points for engaging in public discourse, you might suddenly, instead of caring about getting things right in public discourse, you might suddenly just care about doing whatever it is that gets you the most points. And we know what gets you the most points on Twitter. It's moral outrage. Content with moral outrage gets four times as much attention and spread as any other content. Now, I've experienced this firsthand, and I'm betting that you have too. I'll use Instagram as my example. I first got on Instagram for fun. I didn't post anything work-related for years. When I did start to create work-related content for Instagram, I started paying attention to what was quote-unquote working for others and experimented with those strategies. The only metric I had to know whether a strategy was working for someone else was whether they were acquiring more likes, comments, and followers. So the action I took was filtered through those metrics. I didn't actually know if those strategies produced quality connections that led to new relationships or customers. And so that goal quickly faded into the background. There was an implicit assumption 
that if I increased likes, comments, and followers, then I'd increase quality connections. That assumption was unfounded. Likes, comments, and follower counts weren't designed to help me reach business goals or qualitatively measure the effectiveness of my efforts. They measure something much, much simpler. Likes measure whether the post creates an immediate, strong, positive reaction. Comments often measure whether something immediately creates the emotions that generate response. And follower accounts measure whether someone wants to see more of my stuff, largely based on how I did on those first two measures. While I might measure value according to thoughtfulness, deep inspiration, and changed minds, there's no transparency into those results. I can't measure them unless someone opts to tell me they experience that kind of value from what I share. In the absence of a way to measure that more durable value, I'm left with measuring the simplified ephemeral value of likes, comments, and follower count. Now that's okay, as long as I leave those measures in context. They measure what they measure and nothing more. But many of us prefer tracking the simplicity and clarity of metrics to the more challenging to measure results. As we operate in the system of those metrics, we start to take them on as the source of our motivation. And every technology we use today is facilitating that process. I can look on my Instagram insights at any time to find out how many people are following me that weren't last week or what my most liked post of all time was. Because those metrics are so easily accessible, they become the motivation for my action. I create content for likes, reach, and comments. I'm guessing that you feel like your values have been captured in this way too. Consider what happened when Instagram announced that its main focus was going to be on video, specifically reels. I saw a bunch of reactions about needing to figure out reels or being forced to create video content when they didn't want to. That's what it's like to be a value captured user. You don't just use the system. You play its game by its rules, no matter what is actually important to you. So that brings us back to Nguyen's philosophy of games. Nguyen describes games as temporary environments with their own rules, goals, and point systems. So I went looking for some kind of philosophy to help me understand what games were. And I found this incredible book, Bernard Suits, The Grasshopper. And this is from the 70s. And Suits offers the following definition of what it is to play a game. He says, to play a game is to voluntarily take on unnecessary obstacles for the sake of making possible the activity of overcoming them. Suits is really interested in the fact that when you're playing a game, you're trying to get some end state. What's interesting about games for him is that you have this thing, the finish line, but it doesn't count unless you did it under specified constraints. So a marathon is a temporary environment, right? Within that environment, my goal is to follow a 26.2-mile course with some combination of running, walking, and maybe crawling in an allotted time. Time, in this case, is also the point system. I care about both crossing the finish line and I care about how long it takes me to do that relative to my own goal or relative to others. But I don't carry those constraints or goals into the rest of my life. I don't care about my pace as I'm just going about my day. The marathon environment doesn't shape my action on a daily basis. But for those four or five hours while I'm running the marathon, that environment is 
everything. Every choice I make is based on the obstacles, goal, and point system I voluntarily taken on for the pleasure of running the marathon. This, Nguyen reasons, is why games are so great. They reduce the variables we're dealing with for a period of time. They allow us to take on new, clear goals. Defeating the boss at the end of a level, or conquering the world, or solving the murder. They provide us with obstacles that we happily contend with for the sake of play. I think one of the ways that life makes us suffer the most is that what we're trying to do is often very unclear, right? Values are unclear. They're first of all, it's unclear what the right values are. Second, their application is often unclear. Third, there's like a thousand values, right? And it's hard to trade them off, and it's hard to see how they balance. And then there's a billion other values from other people. So how the hell do we build a society? In games, there's one goal. It's quantified. You know exactly where you stand. You know that everyone else is pursuing the same goal by the same means. Life is kind of this existential value torture, and games give us a little. Bit of oasis from that. For a little bit, you know exactly what the point is, and the reason is you're offered a simplified, quantified goal that tells you exactly how well you're doing, and that it's easily applicable to the world. Marketing a business is a challenge. It's a rich, complex task that isn't easily reduced to one or two measures. We bear that cognitive burden as marketers and business owners. But then along comes a system like Instagram, Facebook ads, or search engine optimization, and phew, everything seems simpler. All you need to do is make stuff that gets likes or clicks or keywords. Business marketed. But it's not that simple. We think the simplicity of these metrics will make the task easier because we have a sort of psychological clarity about what we need to do to win the game. But instead, we end up spending time and money racking up points instead of actually investing in what matters. The same thing happened with my watch. Instead of training smart, which involves plenty of rest to recover from strenuous activity, I ended up pushing myself day after day after day. Knowing when to rest, listening to my body, planning out my training—those are complex tasks. But my watch simplified. Everything. It gave me a point system and told me what to care about. When I didn't do as well as I did the day or week before, it would tap my wrist and give me a little passive-aggressive notification. I started to notice not only the strain on my body, but the strain on my psyche too. I'd even tell my husband, "My watch is yelling at me again." Being active was no longer a pleasure; it was a compulsion. I think the most potent thing about games is the way they manipulate our agency. The way we enter into this like alternate self, and that's I think where you can see the greatest power of games and their greatest danger. The greatest power of games is that you can explore this landscape of different agencies. The greatest danger of games is that you can get sucked into this experience of just craving and wanting to be in a clear. Crisp, agential universe where you know exactly what to do and exactly how well it's measured. About six months ago, I turned off the activity notifications on my watch. It doesn't tell me to stand anymore. It doesn't tell me when I'm not moving as much as I normally would be. It doesn't yell at me for not getting a workout in. I still use my watch to track my activity and movement. The metrics are all right there for me to dig into. 
but they don't tap me on the wrist anymore and tell me I'm not doing enough. Same thing with Instagram and other social media. Today, I try to keep the likes, shares, and follows in context, although I'm still prone to falling back into old motivations. I try to use the metrics available to me as indications of the specific things they signify rather than whether I'm being effective overall. I'm also aware that when I'm using Instagram, there is a certain amount of playing by their rules that I have to do, or it's just a waste of time. So I can use those metrics to discern the rules of the game and decide how much I want to follow them or not. And that awareness is key. It's what keeps my own personal values and agency mostly intact. If I just take on Instagram's rules without that awareness, I end up also taking on its goals and value system, which was absolutely not designed with my success in mind. Nguyen calls this approach value independence. I establish my aim, my methods, and what I care about. I then use metrics that are associated with aspects of those choices to track progress without allowing them to become a measure of my overall effectiveness or the sole source of my motivation. I've become a value-independent user of my watch. I'm mostly a value-independent Instagram user, and I'm working to become a value-independent writer and podcaster. Now, before I wrap this up with a look at the larger systems that capture our value, I want to share some questions you might use if you'd like to spend more time as a value-independent business owner. First, what do you really care about? There are probably at least two things you really care about. One, how you help people. And two, how the business helps you live a better life. Consider the specifics of those two goals for your business. What do they look like? What do they feel like? Second, what are the tangible results that indicate you're accomplishing those things? It might be your client results, comments in your community, emails overflowing with thanks. It might be taking an extended vacation, making more money, spending less time working. How could you actively track those results, qualitative as they might be? Episode 368 with Rita Berry would be really helpful if you want to dig further into those two questions. Third, what are the actions that lead to those tangible results? Not the actions you assume lead to those results, or the actions that are supposed to lead to those results, but the actions you know generate the results you really care about. Episode 357 with Mara Glatzel would be some great inspiration on this one. And finally, how much of your time and money is actually spent on those actions? And how much of your time and money is spent on value-captured actions? Episode 374 with Elizabeth Jackson would be really helpful for thinking this one through. Now, remaining value independent in our economy, culture, and technological environment takes work and vigilance. But it's work that has far more durable results than likes or follows. Okay, so far we've looked at limited built environments. My watch, Instagram, marathons, marketing, but I wanna zoom out and look at these same dynamics in larger systems. Political systems and economies are in essence point systems. In a political system, the points are calculated in terms of power and in economies, the point system is financial. 
In a political system, the people or institutions that have the most power points get to make the rules and impose goals on the rest of the system. In economies, complex financial calculations are reduced to simplified value capture metrics like GDP or the unemployment rate or the interest rate on the 10-year T-note. Those metrics teach us what to care about. Now, these systems aren't games, though. They're not temporary. We haven't chosen them. We don't voluntarily take on the obstacles that are inherent to them. Yet these systems guide our actions. In the U.S., the prevailing political system is neoliberalism, characterized by deregulation, free market solutions to social problems, individualism, and personal responsibility. Neoliberalism isn't just the system favored by the right. It's become the assumed baseline for both parties. Neoliberalism sets the stage for lean-in feminism, corporate diversity initiatives, and means testing for government support. It's the widely accepted social order. Yet, what neoliberalism teaches us to care about actually runs counter to many of our personal values, and not just for bleeding-heart lefties like me. We can see this clearly in surveys about progressive policy positions. A CNBC survey in 2019 found that 84% of those surveyed supported mandatory paid maternity leave. 75% favor increasing the amount the federal government spends on child care. 60% support increasing the minimum wage to $15 per hour. 57% favor tuition-free public universities and colleges. And 54%? support Medicare for all. What's more, over 60% support taxing the wealthy to pay for these programs. My guess is that those numbers have even gone up in the last three years. Now, I see this in my own family, too. If we're talking politics, well, we support different parties and different people. But if we're talking policy, it's ridiculously easy to find common ground. So I think we find ourselves in this pervasive political system that tells us to care about things that are different from what we actually care about. All of the incentives are arranged so that we're regularly manipulated into action that supports the system's aims, while our own personal values are either subverted completely or hang out in the background creating confusion. Our businesses operate in this same system with incentives that operate in one value set, while the value set we want to act on is hamstrung. We've internalized the risks and rewards of the system while subduing the risks and rewards we find truly meaningful. And it's out of this confusion that we go hunting for answers for better ways forward. Adrian Dobb put it this way in What Tech Calls Thinking, quote, Self-help is frequently about asserting our autonomy, not by rejecting societal norms or our historical situation, but by understanding them better than other individuals in society and thereby coming out ahead of others in our situation. Now, you can easily sub out business support for self-help here. Sure, we want to understand the system so we can get ahead, not so we can dismantle it. Nguyen notes that giving into the systems and its incentives can feel good. It relieves all that existential angst, right? Exercise every day, get in those 10,000 steps, stand up every hour, rings closed, ward one, post a pretty photo, write a snappy caption, share it at the right time, watch the likes and comments add up. Get into college, graduate, get a job, get promoted, get married, have a kid, buy a house, life accomplished. I've developed a fair amount of defensive suspicion 
about certain kinds of pleasure. A marker of design game-like systems is that they're very pleasurable to operate in. The real world is extremely frustrating, extremely difficult, full of things that you don't want to believe, full of things that are hard to understand. And sometimes someone will present me with a system of belief. And as I adopt it, it just gives me everything I want. Like the world seems to start to make sense. Like I feel empowered. I feel good. Everything's falling into place. And I'm not saying that's necessarily false because sometimes that's what it feels like to really figure things out. But I'm saying sometimes you just need to be suspicious. That's value capture at work at a societal or existential level rather than a platform or game level. We can see value capture throughout our culture, in the media, in conspiracy theories, in the wellness industry, even in our own electoral system. But seeing it, that's the upside. When you can't see the value capture at work, we end up confused on edge and driven by values that aren't our own, even if we're also enjoying the clarity of purpose. When you can see value capture at work, you can choose more deliberately how you want to engage with the system. I can't change Instagram, but I can use the metrics available to me more carefully on the path to my real goals. I can't change my watch, but I can use the metrics available to me with wisdom about my own body. I can't change neoliberalism or capitalism on my own, but I can engage with those systems with greater care and look for ways to make things better, not just for myself, but for others as well. Most importantly, as I act more deliberately within these systems, I can accept, even celebrate, the rich textures of value and meaning at play. Wynne says that games are the art of agency. They create a space where the choices we make, the goals we pursue, and the methods we use are temporarily clarified. We use the obstacles and constraints of the game as instruments for pleasure. Now, I've long said that one of my own goals is to help you realize your own agency, to recognize the power you have to make choices, pursue goals, and use methods that align with your own values, even if those actions bump up against the larger system. As entrepreneurs, time and money are the instruments of that agency. We can use them to feed the system, allowing our own values to be hijacked, or we can use our time and money to deliberately take action that takes into account the constraints of the system while fulfilling our own values and goals. If what works is helping you think differently about time, money, and how you're navigating the 21st century economy, please share the show with a friend. The easiest way to do that is through Podlink. You can find the show at pod.link slash whatworks. And that page will allow anyone you share the show with to easily open their favorite podcast app and start listening. That's pod.link slash whatworks. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. This episode was edited by me, Tara McMullen, and Marty Seafelt. Our executive producer is Sean McMullen. What Works is recorded and produced on the ancestral homelands of the Susquehannock people. The Yellow House is located on the unceded land of the Katunaha Nation.